You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. You're now tuned into the Pod Awful channel. Pod Awful. Bi Quarterly Women's Social Club. Days and Convicted. Pool Party Radio. Show Kane. The Devil's Advocate. The Projection Booth. Awful Flips. Pod, Pod Awful. Awful.net. Are you receiving me? Support for the Projection Booth Podcast comes from Stitcher Smart Radio. Now podcast listeners can access the latest episodes of The Projection Booth and thousands of other podcasts on the go without downloading or syncing. Stitcher instantly delivers episodes of your favorite shows to your mobile phone. Stitcher Smart Radio can be found in the iPhone and Android app stores or on the web at stitcher.com slash booth. Black man in a white man town, he's got trouble. white man's town, bringing black man's law. He's black. He's brutal. He's boss. Fred Williamson is boss nigga. They call him boss. Boss nigga. I just warned your new deputy. Made myself the sheriff. He, he just locked up the bank president. Part legend, part devil. All man. Boss nigga. Williamson is boss nigger. Nervio Martin is deputy. They call him boss. Boss nigger. Rated PG. All ages admitted. Parental guidance suggested. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Rob St. Mary, and of course, joining me, Mr. Mike White. Morning, ma'am, and isn't it a lovely morning? Up yours, nigger! And joining us this week from Badass Mofo, the head honcho, David Walker. How you doing? Thanks for having me on. All right. This week, we're talking about Boss Nigger, the 1974 black western starring, written, and produced by Fred the Hammer Williamson. The Hammer plays Boss, a bounty hunter who, along with his partner Amos, played by Durvel Martin, decide the best way to make money and catch the bad guys might just to become the sheriff and deputy of a nearby corrupt town. And, of course, two black dudes rolling into a lily-white town and becoming the head law enforcers doesn't seem to go over too well. But Boss and Amos find ways of dealing with the locals while rooting out the corruption and teaching ignorant white folk a thing or two about how to treat the recently freed African Americans. Now, just to note, we will be following the black laws that are mentioned in Boss Nigger, and we don't plan on paying any fines or doing any time for using the word nigger in the wrong way. Somebody help me stop this nigger. He's cleaning out my store. Deputy, do your duty. Sir, you are under arrest. Me? What for? He's the one breaking the law. He's cleaning out my supplies. We're on the town payroll. Sir, you have broken the black law number six. Being called a nigger in public. Now that's $20 or two days in jail. This is outrageous. You heard the man, so we'll be using the word the correct way, as it's the title of the film. Kind of hard not to say it. If you happen to have a problem with that word, you 
probably should just turn the podcast off now because you'll be hearing it a few times, so you've been warned. But as I said, we're going to do it the right way. So, David, as our guest, we'll start with you. What was your experience in seeing Boss Nigger, and what did you think? My first experience, I saw it on VHS in the either the late 80s or early 90s under its alternate title, which is just plain Boss. Um, and, and I fell in love with it. Uh, it's the best of the Westerns, of the black exploitation Westerns, followed maybe closely by Take a Hard Ride. Um, and I just, you know, I'm, I'm also a big fan of spaghetti Westerns, and even though Boss Nigger isn't a spaghetti Western, it comes about as close as, as you can get. And just has a great sense of humor, and, you know, Fred Williamson is fun in it, and, and Derville Martin is great. I'm also a huge Derville Martin fan who, you know, unfortunately died really young, and so he, he didn't do a lot of movies that we get to see. What about you, Mr. White? I want to say that I saw this one a few years ago, but I honestly can't remember seeing it. So for sure, I saw it within the last six months and have watched it again a few times. And I'm really looking forward to talking about it more with you guys. As for all of these uh, black westerns that we'll be talking about, I haven't seen any of them at all until now. I think the reason why we decided to choose this one to do on the show was because we had that offer to talk to Fred about Original Gangsters 2, and I said, why not line up something we can talk to him about to sort of extend our interview with him, and I figured, why not this one, because it was the first film that he produced and wrote, and I figured he would have some good things to say, which you'll hear later in the interview. So I kind of just took it on a lark that, you know, it was a pretty well-known title. I hadn't seen it. And I thought, why not put two and two together and sort of see how it all comes together? Well, in that regard, you guys lucked out because I've seen all the Westerns, even the ones that are hard to find. And this is the best of them. Um, And, you know, Fred, uh, he directed Adios Amigos, which was, ah, we don't even need to talk about that. And then there was... um, the Legend of Nigger Charlie and the sequel to Soul of Nigger Charlie. And we can get into all that later, but really Boss Nigger is like um, not only the best of the Fred Williamson Westerns, but also head and shoulders above movies like Soul Soldiers or the McMasters. Or I mean, there's some pretty obscure movies out there that a lot of people haven't seen. They, they never made it to, um, to DVD, and so they sort of got lost in the, in the, the death of, of VHS. So this is actually a great movie to talk about. Yeah, and it is a great film. I had a lot of fun watching this one. I I like that it does, as you said, David, it it really does kind of hearken to uh, spaghetti westerns. And there really is that kind of man with no name. Obviously, he does have a name, which is Boss, which is also kind of, you know, more of a a request for some um, uh, respect, really, in this town. But... I like it feels very much like um Fistful of Dollars in the whole way that Clint Eastwood is constantly going back and forth between the two families in that town and constantly hitting them up for money and getting more. And with this one we kinda have the thing that uh Rob talked about at the beginning where it's the whole tax. Like if you use the N word the wrong way, you're gonna get taxed for it and you know, it just keeps uh raking up more dough and setting people up against each other and and getting more and more money that way. I guess he kind of does the same thing a a little bit 
uh, in Adios Amigo, or at least the um, Richard Pryor character does that a little bit. But in this one, it's got a lot more fun to it, and the film just has a lot more heart to it, and it kind of sticks to that whole spaghetti western um, storyline a little bit more too, as far as the hero when he gets uh, you know the the shit beat out of him when he comes back, how he succeeds, and the whole build up. It, it, as I said, it reminded me a lot of Fistful of Dollars. It also kind of re- reminded me a little bit of um, Not Hang Him High. What's the one where he comes to town and paints the town red? Oh, um, High Plains Drifter. Right, exactly. It reminds me a lot of High Plains Drifter in that kind of way, too, where he comes in and just kind of exploits the town people who are treating pretty much everybody that isn't one of like the main townspeople um you know, treating them badly. So like the, the dwarf that's in high plains drifter, I guess you could kind of say is a little bit like the, uh, the, the Mexicans that Fred Williamson helps out. And just that whole way that, um, you know, when Clint, Clint Eastwood comes into town, he starts to change the balance of power. That's definitely the way when, uh, Williamson and Derville Martin come into town, they do the exact same thing. Two movies that really, I think had an impact. I always figured had an impact. I could be wrong were um, the two Trinity movies that uh, Enzo Barboni did. Uh, they Call Me Trinity and Trinity is Still My Name with Terrence Hill and Bud Spencer. Because that got this, this sort of comic duo thing going in Westerns, which Boss Nigger really does well, the, the, the play between Fred Williamson and, again, Derville Martin. So, and I don't know if either of you have ever seen the Trinity movies. I'm a big fan of both of those. And, and, I, and I have always thought that and those came out like in 70 and 71, and I always thought that you probably saw those um, because they were big hits here in the U.S. And, and sort of borrowed from those as well. I love the Trinity films. I've only ever seen them on those like bargain VHS three packs, you know, where it was like just shitty, shitty quality, but even full frame and, you know, just looking nasty, they're still hilarious. So the, the, comedy translates even though it's presented in a really bad form most definitely so did we sort of handle the plot or do you think that we should go a little bit more into that we might want to talk a little bit more about it i mean we talked a little bit about them coming into town but i guess we didn't talk about the note in the whole that whole thing yeah the film opens up it's actually kind of interesting it opens up with a bunch of guys around a campfire and they're trying to open this chest and then sort of out of the darkness, you don't know where it's coming from, they get gunned down, sort of left and right. And then that's when we have the appearance of both Boss and Amos, and they're going through sort of their things, and we find out that they're bounty hunters. And as they're going through their various things of the dead men and trying to collect a reward for the bounty, they find that one of them had been offered to become sheriff of this town. And that they work for this gang. And basically this becomes sort of the blackmail note. Um, I don't know, want to use the term blackmail. in a Why has it got to be black? <laughs> but um, it becomes this blackmail note that the, the pair go, hmm, this will be interesting because we can get our bounties and we can get paid to become sheriff and deputy of this nearby town. So they go to town and basically say, hey, we found this note. This is really interesting. Not only are you, the mayor, uh, willing to hire this you know, thug who's working with this gang of thieves uh, to be your sheriff, uh, we don't necessarily think that you probably want people to know that, that you're working with the criminal element that seems to come over and knock over your town from time to time. So they 
sort of hold that over the mayor's head, and then that leads to this whole leads to them becoming the sheriff and becoming the deputy of the town. And then there are these things that are sort of peppered in there related to the people in town sort of getting used to the fact that these two guys have come into town, two black dudes have come into town, and they're going to run law enforcement there. And some people really seem to have a problem with that, even to the point of, you know, I don't want him sort of touching my wife because, you know, these black devils and all of this. So it's um, it's sort of interesting how it plays out, and I think that really when you get into a lot of the setups of the scenes and what the various scenes are, this movie is much more contemporary than something that would be in the 1870s in terms of the ideas that it's talking about. Yeah, I would agree. I think that um, if nothing else, I think I think this came after Adios Amigos, if I'm correct. It was before. Oh, was it before? It was before, yeah. This is the third of the four sort of Fred Williamson westerns. So, Adios Amigos was a year or two later. Got it. Well, it's definitely the film that... Uh, it's, it's one of the better films that, that Fred has written. And and it does. It has this sort of contemporary feel of, you know, like you could almost place it in, in another era, another decade, like outside of the 1800s, put it even into the early part of the 20th century and still make that, that storyline work. And I think that that's part of why audiences resonated with it. It's not too heavy handed. And what's trying to say there's that sense of humor, but there's also some relevance to it, which is like, you know, um, that sort of mirrored the way, you know, Hollywood was, was shifting a little bit and suddenly, you know, guys like Fred Williamson and Jim Brown were actually becoming the leading men and action heroes in roles that, you know, gone to Clint Eastwood and John Wayne and guys like that. Before we forget, I want to point out that the guy who plays the mayor, his name is, uh, R. G. Armstrong. And as soon as he came on screen, I was like, oh my God, I've seen this guy so many times. And of course, I blanked exactly where I had seen him. But if you go and look up his filmography on IMDb, he's got like 182 credits there. And he has been in everything from Predator to Race with the Devil. And he was in uh, Mean Johnny Barrows again, which is another, that's another Fred film, right? Yep. So, and he was, you know, Mr. TV and everything, you know, Charlie's Angels, Vegas, and he's just got a great face. And he's one of these guys, he's got one of these faces that, you know, Peck and Paw used in uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. So, a uh, terrific Western player, but also, you know, fits in kind of with this contemporary idea that you're talking about, Rob. And I think what really makes it contemporary is several things. Unlike the spaghetti Westerns that you could say, it borrows from in terms of you know tone or idea uh it doesn't go for old style music all of the the music that's in the film is like 70s funk r&b kind of stuff it's not that sort of you know lone guitar and harmonica ennio morricone stuff at all but the other thing that made it contemporary for me is i go okay this is 1975 Consider 64, 65 was, you know, civil rights movement. So that was like 10 years earlier. And there's a lot of things in here in terms of scene setups that to me sort of play on the stuff that people who would be seeing this film either would have encountered a few years earlier or were continuing to encounter in their own lives. For example, I mean, obviously the whole thing in there with, uh, as we played at the beginning with, 
you know, putting up a fine for being called nigger in public. The whole thing about they go to the cafe and they sit down and they want something to eat. Look, he knows he's a nigger. I knows as a nigger. So you don't have to tell us we is. But not even niggers got to eat. So go get me some food for I blow your damn head off. Uh, yes, sir, Mr. Nigger. Oh, dear, I mean, yes, sir. <laughs> and... Things like that. There's a lot of stuff in here. The whole sort of thing where when he first comes into the bar, the gang's there and they're like, hey, come over here and shine my shoes. And he sort of puts on this, oh, yeah, thank you, master kind of, you know, attitude. So there's all of this stuff that is, you know, that people would have dealt with who would have seen this film, you know, in terms of the attitude of the public through the civil rights era and things like that. And even things that I found interesting as well was when you talk to Fred, Fred says, look, he goes, here are my rules in terms of if I'm doing a film, it's like, I'm not going to die. I'm going to get the bad guy and I'm going to get the girl in the end. And there's this whole thing in here about um, him and the teacher where she comes over and she's like, oh yeah, you know, it's nice to meet you and all of this stuff. And I would like you to come have, you know, breakfast with me or something. And he's like, I've got enough problems i don't need more problems dealing with a white woman too so there's even that sort of angle in there too where they're dealing with sort of inter-race you know possibility of relationships and things like that and what that all means so the, the movie's very smart it's played a hundred years back but if this was a contemporary film and say it was instead of the small town out west it was chicago or la or new york all of this stuff would have been contemporary. Well, I think the Western kind of affords them the ability to turn the tables even further and to make this almost like a, almost a wish fulfillment kind of thing. So like, as he's doing that kind of like step and fetch it thing where he's coming up to the guy in the bar rather than, you know, punch him in the face or something like that, where it's like, yeah, you know, way to go. He does him one better and shoots him in the goddamn foot. It's like, all right. <laughs> and like that becomes like a running joke for the rest of the film, you know, talking about how he's got p- foot problems and getting the doctor over there and all that and forgetting that the guy's even in the jail cell. It's like, you know, thank you for being able to take it that one extra step by giving, you know, Fred and Derville guns where they can really take care of, of the problems that are in this film rather than just, you know, dealing with their fists or dealing with words. It's just like, yeah, let's, let's, give these guys some guns and, and let them go loose. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, Fred's, Fred's the, the fact that his career has lasted as long as it has says that he's a pretty smart, savvy guy from a business standpoint, but he's also just a really smart person. And, and I think you hit the nail on the head when you were talking about wish fulfillment. I think that that's what this movie really was. It was like, it was like Fred making, doing a lot of things that, that he wanted to do and that a lot of audiences wanted to see. And and he brought that also to you know to Black Caesar, which is uh, another one of his better films. I mean, I think Black Caesar and Boss Nigger are amongst his better films from the seventies, and and a lot of those take you know sort of traditional genre pieces, the gangster film or the or the western, and and add that extra element of you know okay, well this is what we would like to see added to these genres. And, and that's where the, why I think the film works. I mean, everything you're saying is, it, it, it's easy for people to miss it with this film because it's a low budget, you know, and it's, it's, it has a lot of B-movie trappings, but, but it's all right there. And that's what makes it so interesting to me. It's why it resonates with everybody I know who sees it. It may be a B-movie, but it looks awesome. 
I mean, the look of this film is really good, and I think it's very technically capable as well. And one other thing before I forget, I think it's very smart. We're talking about the wish fulfillment thing. I think it's very, very smart that they put Fred and Derville in like the best-looking clothes of all the people that are in the town. I mean, both of these guys look so sharp, and everyone else in the movie is pretty disheveled you know everybody's dusty and dirty and everything but fred and derville throughout most of the movie until you know when i was saying that whole you know the hero has to be beaten up kind of part of the film but otherwise they're looking good through this movie and especially that hat that fred's wearing is looking really good i wish i had one of those myself I think from a technical standpoint, part of the reason why this film also stands out, and we'll talk about the other ones that are in this series, is the fact of the director. And Jack Arnold, if you go back and look at the stuff that he did, his probably most well-known credit to people is The Creature from the Black Lagoon. So you have a guy who 20 years earlier had done that film and had done a lot of TV and, and various other stuff. So here's a guy who who knows how to use a camera and knows how to you know, set this stuff up, even though he is dealing with a lower budget. Yeah, and he did The Incredible Shrinking Man, which really is kind of, I always put that as kind of like a noir sci-fi, just the way it really uses that black and white palette and everything, and, and just really looks good, and obviously not a big budget on that one either. And yeah, he worked on a, a ton of television, too, and so he's he definitely has a, uh, um, a, a pedigree of knowing how to get the most for the dollar and get it up there on the screen. And and I think that, that, you know, Fred is always at his best when he's working with directors who know what they're doing, which, again, you go back to Black Caesar, that's, that was Larry Cohen, you know. It, it, does, it, it does have a, a really good look, far superior to some of the other movies we'll be talking about, I'm sure. And, and it, it's, it's the reason why it's one of the movies that I own, as opposed to the other ones. I'm like, yeah, I've seen them, but I don't need to own them. When you also look at sort of the setup of the various characters within the film and how, in a way, sitting down and sort of looking at where they sort of play on the line is that the Jed character, who's the leader of the gang, is the outlaw. He's white, he's the outlaw, and then you have Fred's character, who is black and is justice. So there's sort of this mirroring of these two characters and sort of what they represent also in terms of their larger gang. And there's like, you were talking about the guy that he shot in the foot. So you could sort of see him as maybe the deputy to, to Jed, much like Derville Martin's character, Amos is to uh, Fred's boss. And Jed played by William Smith, who again, one of the best character actors out there. And as far as I know, still going strong, but he is, has, was, in so many of my favorite 70s stuff uh, from TV to um, film. So, I mean, he was even in Kolchak, you know, as an Indian <laughs> guy. So, play, played many races and everything, but always good in whatever he was in and especially good as a bad guy. Yeah, he's, he's in the top 10 evil bad guys for, like, not even top 10, top 5 in terms of like the, the racist villains that you see in, in black exploitation movies, his performance in in this and uh, Black Samson as well is like, you know, in Black Samson he actually steals the movie from the hero. In this one, he's able to go toe to toe with with Fred Williamson, and and it's really effective. I mean, he's it's easy to hate William Smith, 
and love him at the same time because he, he is so good at what he does, when, especially when he plays the bad guys. And hopefully we'll be talking more about William Smith, gosh, probably next year if we ever finally cover Conan. <laughs> <laughs> I think the only thing that was distracting for me when it came to the film and the filmmaking was, I guess it was uh, the teacher character that you were talking about, Rob. Was she the one with the overdubbed voice? You know, the version that I was watching, I couldn't tell if she was overdubbed or not because it wasn't a very pristine copy. It was sort of beat up, but I mean, it looked nice, but it was probably an old VHS dub. The one that I watched... It was very obvious, and especially just the sound quality of whenever she spoke. It was so different than everybody else. And I know, you know, some sometimes that's very um, quaint in seventies films. You know, like I'm thinking of Seymour Cassell in Death Game, where his entire performance is overdubbed, and her whole thing. I don't know if it was one of those. You know, the actress left before the looping could happen or maybe she had you know a terrible speech impediment or something like that but yeah it was just kind of weird that all of her performances dubbed and it just was like these two guys talking normally and then all of a sudden this third voice just chimes in from almost the heavens <laughs> with her speaking well, that's a nice place you have him as brewery why don't you stay a spell and have some coffee or apple pie? I make the best in town. Yes, I'm, I'm sure you do. Look, I want to apologize for yesterday. I didn't mean it the way it sounded. What I was really trying to say was, well, I judge a man by his deeds and not by his color. It was like, whoa, okay. So uh, other than that, technically, I think that this was a very well-made film. And if anything, I, I think... Watching this a few more times, I could probably uh, grow to love that. All right, I'm done. (laughs) (laughs) You know, it's funny, David, when we were up at the top of the show here and you were talking about your first experience seeing it and seeing it as it was called Boss was the name of the the VHS uh, title of the film. Uh, A friend of mine told me online that the Toledo Blade, when this came out, would not run the title. So it was put in the paper as Boss Negro. (laughs) Wow. Which totally sort of um, defeats the point, I think. (laughs) You know, talking about at the beginning, the the whole use of the word and um, how we're using it on the show and all that stuff. um, It's, yeah, I, I, I can't even wrap my head around the fact that you would call the film that. Because it doesn't make any sense to me. No, that's a pretty ridiculous uh, retitling of it. I mean, I, I, I think it had a couple other, like, Big Black Boss or something like that. I mean, a lot of these movies had three or four alternate titles. It usually threw Black into it, so it might have been, like, The Black Boss or something. But, um, yeah, Boss Negro is just absolutely ridiculous. Yeah, I mean, for me... The title, the title in 2014 doesn't work just because of the, you know, the... the the charge that that word has, but in 1974, when this thing came out, I mean, it was such a, a great, almost contradiction in terms, you know, and just like this guy is the boss and he is, you know, he's the HNIC in this and is just like such a great kind of turn and play on those two terms kind of coming together and, and hitting each other in the head. But I don't know. I could be reading way too much into it. And it could just be that they wanted to play on the titles of the other two movies, but not 
you know throw the the Charlie part into it at all and just kind of concentrate on the on the one word of it. Well, I mean, to me, the two words represent, as you were saying, I mean, boss obviously being the leader or the person in charge and the other word being the servant or the slave, you know, and especially when we're talking about an 18, you know, the, the, the film takes place probably sometime in the early 1870s is what I'm thinking because of the one scene where they're at, where they're eating and the mayor comes over and Derville Martin's character tells him, you know, wait outside and we'll talk to you in a minute. Good morning, gentlemen. It's my pleasure to tell you uh, that... Sir, you are interrupting our breakfast. We never discuss business while we're eating. So if you would be so kind as to uh, wait outside until we're finished, we would be happy to talk to you then. Uh, uh, yes, uh, certainly. Where'd you learn to talk like that? I've been wanting to say that to somebody for eight years. My slave master said that to me once. It sounded so pretty, I never forgot it. (laughs) Even if that was, you know, 1865, right before emancipation, that would make it, you know, 1873. So just the use of that idea and, and playing on that whole concept. Yeah, and it's also, you know, from a historic standpoint, um... The, you know, because the, the, we have this view of the Old West based on the Westerns that we saw in movies, which was very different than reality. And so both Boss Nigger and then the Nigger Charlie movies, that, that wasn't uncommon in the Old West. Guys had names like Nigger Charlie. You know, like that was, um, if, you, if you go back and you actually study the Old West and, and cowboys, there were a lot of both notorious gunslingers and outlaws and, and lawmen all who were stuck with that moniker either in front of their name or after their name. And so um, in that regard, like, it's, there's, there's a level of historical accuracy to both of those films. But I think, you know, he did Les Mim Nigger Charlie first, Fred did, and, and I think that he wanted to bring some of that to it. Like, take that accuracy, but then also turn it around and, and give it a power that it, that it never had before in popular culture anyway. We're going to take a break and play an interview with the boss himself, Fred the Hammer Williamson, after these messages. It was a childhood corrupted by endless hours of VHS rentals. For sake, the manager should you'd love it. In his most formative years, he had seen it all. I can handle anything. Action. It's not to be used aggressively. But if I have no other choice. Horror. <laughs> and romance. Now he's decided it's time to go back. For just one more adventure. Humans are such easy prey. Noel Miller presents... You're the problem, you little shit. The Adventures and VHS Podcast. Join me, Noel Miller, as each month I take an in-depth look at one movie from my collection of ex-rental 80s VHS classics and speak to one or two of the people involved with making them about what the format means to them. The Adventures and VHS Podcast. 
Thank you. Have a nice day. Download today from iTunes by searching for Adventures of VHS or visit adventuresofvhs.com. You know, I was looking for a little excitement, but I was worried about privacy. And then I found out about Vibrators.com. Vibrators.com has the perfect products for women and men and couples. They have helpful suggestions and information on how to make sure you get something just right for you. Plus, for over a decade, Vibrators.com has never played around with your privacy. While other .coms make their money by selling your information, Vibrators.com never has and never will. And when you use the special code BOOTH, that's B-O-O-T-H, at checkout, you'll receive free priority shipping on any order. That's Vibrators.com. Get a little excitement in your life. All right, I'm here with Bill Byforce and Mr. Chris to tell you a little bit about Outside the Cinema. All right, Reverend Scott, take us to church. Uh, What can we expect to find from a typical show? Two hours of just random blabber. (laughs) Uh, Is there anyone's coattails you wrote in on to popularity? I'm the guy that fucking burns the coattails and then pisses on them. You review all these exploitation, horror, comedy, cult, and often all-around terrible movies. You must have a strong driving force that keeps you going. Ego. <laughs> I don't know if I've heard you say that before. Uh, yeah, I've been saying that for a while. Really? I have been saying that for a while. Also, I'm high on smack. Well, it's definitely working for you guys. Yeah. People are coming out in droves to support you on iTunes. We just the other day got a, a, a one-star review on iTunes. Well, that is one That is one star too many. <laughs> Let me tell you. The worst fucking piece of shit I've ever heard. This has been great, guys. Thanks, God. Ugh. That was good. Oh, he's got you crying over there. I'm good for the rest of the year. Nice. That was too much. Hey, Iris, you know what we should do? We should try to get Fred Olin Ray on the show. Why would he want to come on our show? Hi, this is Fred Olin Ray, and you're listening to the Badasses Boobs and Body Count Podcast. Okay, what about Olaf Ittenbach, Germany's Splatter King? Ah, uh, that'd be great, but I doubt he speaks any English. I'm Olaf Ittenbach, and you're listening to the Badasses and Body Count Podcast. What about the director of Blood Sucking Freaks, Joel M. Reed? Isn't he dead? This is Joel M. Reed, and you're listening to Badass Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. No, Iris, he's not. Hello, I'm Mike, host to the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. And I'm Iris, co-host of the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts Podcast. Every week in High Iris discuss lesser-known action, exploitation, and horror cult cinema. Mike and I discuss films like The Black Godfather, The Beast That Killed Women, and Biozombie to name just a few. And every now and then we get to speak with the people behind all the films we love to talk about. Okay, how about this, Mike? Let's get Andy Sidaris on the show and talk girls, guns, and G-strings. Um, yeah, RSD's actually really dead, but we did manage to talk to his wife, Arlene, way back in episode 20. Well, I suppose that's the next best thing. Yeah, I suppose so. So the Badasses Boobs and Body Counts podcast can be found on iTunes, on Stitcher's Smart Radio, and on SoundCloud. Just search for the BB&BC podcast to start listening today. You can also visit the show's website at badassesboobsandbodycounts.com. Okay, Iris, did you keep track of the boob and body counts on the film we're discussing next week? Uh, no, I thought you were doing that this week. No, I'm no, I no, uh-uh. no. I've seen this. Uh, boy, no, it we're was gonna have you. To, it was you. Uh, look, from now on, let's both do that. Okay, that sounds good.
If you listen to Proudly Resents, the cult movie podcast, you would know how to properly crush a head. But let's say you want to crush a head like Toxic Avenger or the famous full head crushing scene. You take a cantaloupe, carve out the inside, then you load what we call loading the cantaloupe. We used to put in hamburger mixed with cranberry sauce, but now because I'm a vegetarian, it's only cranberry and spaghetti and things that are not animal. Then you put a wig on the cantaloupe and paint a little happy face. Bingo. That was Lloyd Kaufman from Troma Films. To hear more interviews and reviews, go to ProudlyResents.com or find Proudly Resents on iTunes and Stitcher. One of the films that you did, matter of fact, it was the first film that you wrote and produced. I wanted to ask you a few questions about Boss Nigger. And, you know, at that point in your career, why did you decide that, um, you know, you wanted to, to go in and, and write it and produce it and things like that? Kind of tell me uh, how that came together for you. Well, my first film was Adios Amigo and that I did. You know, I mean, uh, raising money for a film that's supposed to be a black film has always been hard. So the way to keep the budget down is to learn how to do everything. I never, when I did my first movie, MASH, I never left the set. I watched everything. I watched how, how they set the camera. I watched how they set the lights. I bugged the hell out of everybody on the set. I never went in my trailer and had my champagne and caviar. I stood out there and bugged everybody. What do you call that? What's the name of that thing? So by the time I finished my television series with Julia, I knew how to make films. I knew how to do everything. I knew how to edit. I knew how to do everything because I had asked, I had asked questions to learn. So I know that if I'm the director and I'm the producer and I'm the star, I'm free. If it's my project, I'm free. So I can raise money and make a good film without spending a lot of money. And my low-budget films are not really low-budget films because they're all, you know, when you when you count all the money that, that I get from working in the film, it's no longer a real low-budget film. So it was out of necessity that I became a producer and a writer and a director. It was totally out of necessity. For a lot of years, you're kind of going between, you know, the, the urban action films and westerns. Did you have a preference when it came to which kind of film you're doing? Yeah, my preference is sustain my three rules. One, you can't kill me in a movie. Two, I have to win all my fights in a movie. And three, I get the girl at the end of the movie if I want it. You do two out of three of those, and I'm there. <laughs> Had you ridden a horse before? Uh, if you asked me that at the time, I would have said yes, and then ran out and learned how. So you never ask an actor what they can do. Actor can do everything. <laughs> you never ask an actor can they do anything because they ain't gonna. They're gonna lie and tell you they can to get the role. Then they're gonna go out and learn how to do it. I'd never seen them. I haven't been close to a damn horse when I did my first western. Oh wow! What well, you seem like a natural. Well, you know, desire creates ability. <laughs> if you have a strong desire, you can learn quick. And I've always been a quick study in things that I've done. I've always been a quick, quick study and fast learner. So I went and rode that horse. I went to a, a, a riding stables, and I rode every day, two and three hours a day on the horse. And pretty soon, I, I didn't need a saddle, man. I was, you know, I was long range on the horse without a saddle. When you sat down to write Boss Nigger, I was wondering what the inspiration was for the film. The inspiration was the exploitation of the name. Because I had just created, just finished two films called The Legend of Nigger Charlie and The Soul of Nigger Charlie. They were made by by Paramount. So now I was going to ride on the coattail of what I had started with this with this fictitious character and this exploitation of the word nigger at that particular time. It was really a bad word. So I was uh, you know, capitalizing on 
what I had done and, and also capitalizing on the negativity of the name. Yeah, I was curious, did theaters or distributors have any kind of problem with that at the time? Or how was it treated back then? Because I know that the word has gone through several iterations throughout the years as far as you know the, the, the hot potato that it really has become. Well, you know, in the film it's different, you know, because the film is about the character that's a winner. It's about the character that's winning the fight. So if you got called a nigger, you, you got shot. <laughs> it's real simple. In my western, that's what nigger Charlie did. He beat up his slave master and he ran away to the west and became a gunfighter. So it was kind of dangerous in my movie to be called that name. So it was a winner. The character was a winner. Even though it was a negative name, he was a winner. When watching the film, I really have the feeling that you were writing it from the perspective of maybe things that you had run into yourself during your own life. I mean, no, I never been, uh, I never been hassled because of being black. Cause I never, I never really gave anybody that chance or that opportunity because my, my motivation to succeed and be a success was because I was black. So anybody that got in my way because I was black only motivated me further. So nobody would dare do that. Also, I'm the hammer, man. You can only go so far with that, with that kind of stuff pushing me in the corner. You better, you better have somebody behind you pushing me in the corner based on racial stuff. So Derville Martin, your co-star, he had. Such a wonderful career as both an actor and a director, um, and sadly he's no longer with us. But what do you remember about working with him? Well, Derville was great for me. I mean, I missed him terribly in all my films. Derville was was the soft spot of the tough side of me. I would be the tough guy, and Derville would would come along and say, you know, why are you doing that? You don't have to do that. Be kind or be nice. He was he was like the buffer between the stuff that I did. And what he did, he was he was my sidekick, but he wasn't the tough guy. He was the kind of guy that kept me in line and pulled me back. He was it was a great combination. When that film came out, how was the reaction in terms of box office and reviews and what you heard? We lined them around the street in New York and, and Chicago, and I mean, theater wasn't big enough to hold all the people. Everybody wanted to see what Nigga Charlie was, and plus we set them up beautifully. We did a big, big uh, sign in Times Square, big old billboard about forty foot high, and it just said. He's coming. It was me with my shirt off, my arms folded, and two guns on my side. It just said, he's coming. After two weeks, the same poster was there. We just changed the words. It said, nigga Charlie has arrived. <laughs> and so we set him up for it, man. I mean, yeah, it was it was beautiful. We set him up, and they fell for it, and they came out to see what nigga Charlie was all about. You know, earlier you were talking about how it seems that uh, films with, with black actors always, at least now, is revolving around comedy. What do you think really needs to take place in order to bring back? I mean, obviously, you can't bring back the, you know, what you were doing in that era, but maybe a new version of it. What do you think really has to happen? Well, you've got to look at the people that make the decisions. Their exposure to black life or their exposure to blacks just doesn't exist. How can a guy on the 16th floor know what's going down on the ground level unless he's there? These guys ain't walking through the ghetto. They're not going out on the corner of the uh, south side of Chicago and says, what kind of film do you want to see? They look at the box office and they said, okay, they like comedy, but they don't say they like comedy because we're not giving them anything else. They just say, oh, well, they like, they like to see the blacks doing comedy. I guarantee you, most of them are not walking through the black neighborhood and if they did, you know, they, they better know how to say, I'm a friend of the hammer and they might get through. <laughs> it ain't happening, man. They just not, there is no exposure. Their life, the black life, just don't exist. Thanks for taking the time. Yeah, hey, no thank problem. you so no, much. No problem. It's been fun. They call him boss. He's a boss. Boss nigga. He's so bad. They call him boss. He's a boss. 
We're back and we're talking about Boss Nigger. Thanks to Fred the Hammer Williamson for coming on the show. You can find out more about what he's up to and the film over on our website, projection-booth.com. So we've talked a little bit. We've kind of been skirting around the issue as far as the first two of these three films and then kind of a fourth entry in the cycle, let's say. So let's talk a little bit more about uh, The Legend of Nigger Charlie, The Soul of Nigger Charlie, and Adios Amigo. And Rob, you mentioned that you saw kind of a beat up copy of Boss Nigger. Well, I don't know if there are good copies of the Nigger Charlie films, but the one that I tried to watch last night, man, it looked (laughs) rough. Well, the I'll tell you sort of if if you have a um, sort of a graph in front of you, Legend of Nigger Charlie is maybe at fifty (laughs) percent, and then Soul is probably about thirty five percent good. In terms of the look, you know, uh, the version of Boss Nigger I saw was probably 60%, and then Adios Amigo was probably back down to 50%. I mean, these transfers I saw were just beat up, and specifically, uh, Soul was terrible, like, in terms of how bad it looked. I mean, it was, like, turning colors and all this stuff. I'm hoping that it's in better shape, even though the film isn't all that good. So <laughs> let's kind of get into um, into the first two. Let's talk about Legend and Soul first, and... Uh, were you able to watch those, and what did you think? Now, I know, David, you've seen all four of these, right? Yep, I have. So I want to hear your opinion first, because you probably have seen <laughs> these longer ago and probably under better conditions that than I saw some of this stuff. Well, you know, um, it's been a long time. It's, it's only been a few years since I've seen Soul, because I managed to score a copy of that. that the picture quality was actually horrendous even by my standards, and that's saying a lot. Um, and, and picture quality on Legend isn't much better. Um, the, the, copy of, the, the, the copy of Legend of Nigger Charlie that's been floating around for a long time is a dub of, believe it or not, the television broadcast. Um, it actually aired on, I believe it was on BET, on Black Entertainment Television in the 80s. And so this is, that copy is from a video master that I think has just been copied and copied and copied. Um, neither film is particularly good. I mean, the, the Legend of Nigger Charlie is, is head and shoulders in terms of entertainment quality way better than, than Soul, which is just bad on just about every level you can imagine, except for maybe the movie poster is pretty good. Um, and, and, you know, both films are just um, sort of everything that was wrong with a lot of other black exploitation films. It's just... It's sort of uneven, and and I and especially with the Legend of Nigger Charlie, the, the one thing I have to say in its defense is, I've never actually seen a copy that I know to be completely uncut. Um, I can't remember what the runtime of the movie is, but I believe that that the copy that everybody has been watching all these years is something like four or five minutes shorter. Not that that makes that big of a difference, but I think it, you know, it. I'm always hesitant to go, well, it was a terrible movie. I only saw the, the cut that was edited for TV. But that said, um, you only need to see it once, maybe twice, to, really, <laughs> to let, let it sink in that like you're not seeing. And I think that's part of the problem with Boss Nigger is that you know people have seen, had seen the other ones and they weren't that good and kind of went in thinking that, you know, or even on video, um, I, I'm not sure. I'm, I'm, at this point, I'm talking out of my ass. So, <laughs> but yeah, neither of them are, are particularly good. 
I was really reminded of like a bad television drama as I was watching The Legend of Nigger Charlie. It was just the production qualities. It felt like as they were walking across the floor, like I could, you know, hear the footsteps all the wrong ways and everything. And just everything felt so cheap while I was watching it. You know what it reminded me of? And I, I don't want to say that it, it cuz it's definitely not on the same production level or story level but it kind of reminded me of this odd mashup of kind of a western cuz it's not really it, you really get more of the western like after like halfway through the film or further in yep. but it reminded me of like roots cuz there's this whole thing in the beginning with um you know back in Africa and there's like you know folks running around and then we're in America and they're on the plantation and then there's like all this plantation politics and sort of like oh you know you're going to be in trouble now because you push the master and all this stuff so there's all this sort of like subpar version of roots that's in there and um, but which is interesting if you watch all four films because then you can sort of see this through line of the character that Fred had obviously in Legend of Nigger Charlie and it sort of keeps moving by the time you get to the second film it's definitely a western I, I would rather watch the first one again than watch Soul of Nigger Charlie Soul of Nigger Charlie just is is, is horrible and the, the third one Boss Nigger is the one that's great and what really makes me sad is that the fourth one Adios Amigo I wanted it to be so good because of Richard Pryor and part of the reason why I wanted it to be so good because of Richard Pryor is because Richard Pryor was supposed to be in Blazing Saddles he co-wrote Blazing Saddles and was supposed to play the Cleveland Little character but because he was such a terror in terms of his drug use and being unstable, they couldn't get the production insurance to bond him. So Mel Brooks couldn't cast him. And when I heard that he had done this Western with Fred Williamson, I go, finally, now we can get some sort of idea of maybe what Blazing Saddles would have been like. And it's such a disappointment. Nope. No such look there. No. Yeah. It it doesn't help that in you were talking about the reminders of Roots while you're watching uh, the Legend movie. Uh, it doesn't help that Derville Martin's character's name is Toby. You know, it's just like oh, and every time they're like yelling Toby, Toby, I'm like oh, come Kunta. on, Kunta, yeah, that's a slave name. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was glad to see Don Pedro Colley show up though as Joshua, who I I love that guy. He's a great great actor, and you know he's been in some of my favorite films, even. Even, I will say, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, which I'm not a big fan of the film, but when he shows up, he does a really good job. But he was incredible in Sugar Hill and everything else that I've ever seen him in, uh, THX 1138 and everything. But yeah, having those three guys, I was just like, yeah, this is going to be great. And it just didn't really do anything for me. Yeah, it's, you know, uh, it's funny that you compare it to, say, it's like watching a TV show. Um I think I wrote a review of it that I, I kept referring to it as Nigger Charlie and Company, and how it seemed <laughs> like a, um, a uh, like a, a, a pilot for a Fox series that just never got picked up in the eighties. And um, you know, the, Where he the, rides from town to town, correcting justice and all that. Exactly, you know, and it, you know, the movie came out in seventy two, which was really early in you know sort of the black exploitation by black exploitation standards. And um, and I, I just I think that they hadn't found their footing yet. The, the genre itself hadn't found its footing, and it was trying to be, you know, like 
it was trying to be, uh, um, uh, you know, not, I don't want to say politically correct with that title, but it was like, it was trying to be more well-rounded and it was trying to, I think, trying to contextualize the slavery experience and, and all this sort of stuff and, and create this character who you were supposed to be sympathetic for. He's this escaped slave. And I was just like, just give me the killing, you know, <laughs> it's like, give me, give me the revenge part of it. Um, and, and it's interesting because, um, you know, there's another film that Fred did called Joshua, which is another Western that also gets it wrong. Um, and it's, it's better than the nigger Charlie movies and better than adios amigos. And it's clearly him trying to do Clint Eastwood, but it still doesn't work. It's, it's, it's really Boston niggers like this sort of anomaly that, that, that actually works because we talk about four films. There's really actually five. And, and the, that fifth one, Joshua is like, um, I mean, that's a movie that you could edit it down to 15 minutes and it still might not be that entertaining. You know, I had forgotten that I watched Joshua. That's how memorable it was. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I forgot that you told me to watch it and sent yeah. me a link to it and I didn't watch it. So I, I watched all the other ones and I'm still upset that I had to sit through soul of nigger Charlie. It just, that one sucked the soul out of me. Yeah, right now, Adios Amigo and Joshua are available out on YouTube. And I would say that's probably the best way to watch these, just so you're not really investing any money in them. Um, it, it's And I feel bad saying that. And I feel bad kind of capping on these other films. <laughs> but when you compare them to Boss Nigger, I mean, it is just like, head and shoulders it is above. night and day. Oh, yeah, head and shoulders above. I mean, yeah. I would watch Boss Nigger again in a heartbeat. It is a very fine film and something to be enjoyed. But yeah, I mean, I, I'm not comparing these other films to, um, you know, uh, Sergio Leone films. I'm not comparing them to, you know, any Don Siegel films, any of those, you know, t Ted post, you know, can direct a, a far better film than, you know, th these early ones. I mean, it was the same kind of uh, company. It was Martin Goldman and, Larry G. Spangler doing these early ones and yeah, just not good. And I really, like you were saying, I wanted to like Adios Amigo because I was like, oh, okay, well, Fred's almost playing like this straight man character to Richard Pryor and I can kind of see what's going on here, you know, that Richard Pryor keeps, you know, foisting all this blame over onto Fred's character and, you know, it, it's almost, it kind of reminded me of that relationship between Blondie and Tuco in The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly a little bit, but just never kind of came together so it was just a shame in that way and you're right as far as the whole like blazing saddles thing because obviously i was reminded of blazing saddles a lot while i was watching boss nigger and i thought okay yeah this will be you know more blazing saddles ish with richard Pryor, you know as one of the two main stars but no the no the other problem i have with adios amigo is the problem i had with uh big gus what's the fuss where I talked about how they kept playing that damn theme song over and over again. <laughs> yes. I, yes. I marked down how many times we get the Adios Amigo theme song. Okay. In the first 15 minutes, it's played four times. Wow. Four times. That's in the first 15 minutes. Adios Amigo. the film it plays seven times there's only one part where i go uh oh they're gonna play it again but no they played a different song instead so seven times and the movie's only 90 minutes so that means about every 
12 minutes, you got to hear this damn theme song again. I have to admit, I was really kind of bummed out, too, because one of the actors that's in Adios Amigo, his name is James Brown. And I was like, oh, shit, James Brown was in this movie? Oh, yeah, I was so excited, too, when I saw it. I was like, no shit, James Brown. No, not no. that James Brown. Different guy. Yeah, white guy. White guy. Does not know how to dance or sing very well. Maybe he does. I don't know. Not anymore, though. He's been dead for 20 years. But <laughs> Well, I'll tell you one thing that was interesting about watching Adios Amigo, and I put this up on our Facebook page, was the fact that Fred Williamson, in his hat, the beard, like the way he looks, that looks like another black western I saw recently in terms of the design of his character. Gee, let me think. Um, could it be... Uh... How do you like the bounty hunting business? Kill white folks and they pay you for it? What's not to like? I like the way you die, boy. He is a rambunctious sword, ain't he? <laughs> What's your name? Django. The D is silent. <laughs> Yeah, I definitely saw very much a Django look with that. I mean, even though, obviously, it was a shitty transfer and everything, so it was almost hard to make out Fred Williamson at times. Hard to even make out if he had a beard. It's like, is that? I can barely see the screen in some of these. But yeah, he totally was was rocking that same look that uh, Jamie Foxx rocks in in, uh, Django Unchained. Yeah, no, there's definitely, it's, it's you know, and, and Tarantino's always been one to do his homework. So um, in terms of watching pretty much everything there is to offer, and in terms of those sort of black exploitation westerns, there, there wasn't that many to go through. Um, you know, I mean, there was a, a, a great television series in the late 60s called The Outsiders, and and the premise of that was a, a black bounty hunter who was an ex-slave teamed up with a white bounty hunter who was an ex-slave owner. And um, there's like was nobody, he a dentist? Uh, he wasn't a dentist. No, no. So okay. he, didn't, he didn't go that far. But like a lot of people don't remember that TV show. It, it, I had hoped after Django and Chain came out, we get to see it released on DVD because it only lasted one season. Uh, I think it was only half a season at that. So it's probably not more than 12 episodes, but um, yeah, that was a, that was a great little show. And, you know, Django and Chang borrowed from that as much as anything else. Um, And, you know, and, and, and that's the thing when there's only a handful of black Westerns to, to go from, it's pretty easy to look at Django and Chang and go, well, they took from this, this, and this, well, that's because that's all there was to take from. But yeah, no, I, I, I saw those same similarities in my own self when I was watching it. It was just the obvious design. I mean, and specifically that hat with the band and the way the hat's bent a certain way. And, you know, also, like I said, if you can get a halfway decent transfer and see that he has facial hair, it's almost the exact same design that Jamie Foxx has. So I'm curious, David, you mentioned a couple other Westerns that just kind of are still laying about on VHS. Is there anything that's out there that's kind of worthwhile that people should be tracking down? Well, I think, uh, you know, Take a Hard Ride is, I believe that that's out on DVD, and that's definitely worth checking out. You know, that's that's got the trifecta, because that's got Jim Brown, Fred Williamson, and Jim Kelly, and then Lee Van Cleef is the villain. So you've got, like, it's for the hard way with that film, and that, that's actually a bonafide 
spaghetti western in that I don't know if it was shot in Europe, but it's it has an Italian director and and that's a fun film. Um in terms of any of the other westerns, like no, not really. <laughs> you know, I, I hate I hate to say it that way. Um Take a Hard Ride is one of those movies that for me it actually gets better every time I see it. Um there there actually is one called Thomasine and Bushrod that Max Julian was in, and Max Julian was the star of the Mac. And it's a, it's a decent film, but it's it's got some problems, too. I mean, it's, it's better than, you know, The Legend of Nigger Charlie, Soul of Nigger Charlie, Joshua, Adios Amigos. It's better than all those. It's not as good as Boss Nigger. It's not as good as Take a Hard Ride. It's The best part of it is Glenn Turman, who plays a gunslinger in it. Um, but, yeah, you know, it, it's when, when you give your life over to a single genre the way I've given mine over to exploitation, and you've seen all of them, there just comes a point where you're like, okay, yeah, yeah, you just only watch these four and you're good, you know? When it, when it comes to the Westerns, you can easily say, yeah, just watch these, like, really two, um, three if you want to throw in Thomas and Bushrod, and, and you don't need to see any of the others. It's sort of the same way with Spaghetti Westerns, where, you know, there was, like, over 600 of those made during their heyday, but you don't need to see more than, like, 30 of them at the very most. And if you remove the Sergio Leone ones from the mix, that number goes down to like 25. You know, so. No, I know what you mean. There, You can go really deep and get into some really bad territory very quickly when you just start popping on like, oh, hey, this is a Western that was made in Europe. Let's check it out. It's like, yeah. oh, yeah. I mean, there's some interesting oddballs out there where it's like, oh, yeah, this this has one kind of cool moment to it or what the hell were they thinking with this but yeah there's there's some real dreck out there yeah yeah no those they need to fill those italian cinemas in the 60s and 70s with a new movie every week it shows you know i mean that, that's <laughs> what a lot of people don't get it's like they were switching those movies out nearly on a weekly basis and um yeah i've watched some of those and i've thought to myself like like what am i doing like you, you're talking about spending money it's like there comes a point where it's not even money it's I just gave this 90 minutes of my time that I'm never getting back. And and that's that's like a crime against humanity right there when you've wasted your time. Oh, yeah. Well, out of the four that I watched, uh, one of the 90 minutes was not a waste. So I guess that I am now in a deficit of about four hours. I'm, I'm going to go drink now because I'm very sad. <laughs> okay, we're going to take a break and play a preview for next week's show. Desire, there is a darkness. Well, that's why I'm with you. Because you say I for me. Love opens to absolutely unknown horizons. <laughs> Isabella Johnny. The internationally acclaimed actress in her most explosive, controversial role. <laughs> Sam Neill. Heinz Bennett. Two men. And a woman no man could ever possess. Special visual effects by Academy Award winner Carlo Rambaldi. Thank <laughs> you. 
mortal terror. Inhuman ecstasy. Soon you will know the meaning of possession. It wasn't even human. That's right. We'll be back next week with a discussion of the horror film. Maybe you want to call it horror. Maybe not. Don't say that around the director anyway. Possession. Don't miss it. Before we go, we want to thank this week's special guest co-host, Mr. David Walker, for coming onto the show. So, David, where can people go to catch up with you and what is new in the world of Badass Mofo? Well, they can go to badazmofo.com, which is B-A-D-A-Z-Z-M-O-F-O.com, and I update that whenever the bird hits me, um, all kinds of nuttiness there. I'm, not, I'm working on multiple projects, but I think in terms of the listeners, the thing that would be of most interest to them is that I'm, I'm actually writing um, a book on black exploitation, the history of black exploitation, culling from my old reviews, but also giving it a much more comprehensive historical look and um that'll be out early next year i think um i'm still i'm still sort of planning it all out planning out the format and and really just i'm trying to study all the other books that have been written on the subject so that i can write the definitive one so no one else has to write another one (laughs) well i think i might own at least two out of three books i don't know have you done more than three books now uh, I don't even know. I think I have like four books out now. Yeah. I mean, okay. I've, I've also branched out cause I'm doing, um, I've written some, I've written, I've published my first young adult novel. I'm working on my second young adult as it is, as, as we speak. Um, awesome. so, I, so I branched out into other stuff other than just writing about film, but in terms of film stuff, yeah, there's only two. Okay. Yeah. Cause I, I picked up what I, what I'm counting is, I do not yet have your Spaghetti Westerns book, but I do have your um, Black Exploitation Volume One, and then also the Reflections on Black Exploitation, um, which you you co did you co-write that with uh, Andy Roush? Um, we yeah, I did. It was that was a bunch of interviews that I had done that were sort of sitting around with no home, and then Andy was putting something together and contacted me, and we sort of decided, you know. I, I had the chocolate, he had the peanut butter, and so we, you know, um, we put it together, and, and that one, that worked out really, really well. In fact, I'm writing some stuff for Annie's new book right now. Oh, cool. And then you've done some film projects and stuff, too, right? Oh, yeah, I've done, um, I, I'm sort of a jack-of-all-trades, but a master of none. I've done a couple film projects. I did a short film with Ken Forey from, um, you know, Dawn of the Dead and the Devil's Rejects. I did a short film with him. Oh, God, like maybe six or seven years ago called uh, Black Santa's Revenge, which was kind of my homage to black exploitation films and um, a couple other shorts. Uh, and I did a documentary on black exploitation films called Mac Hammered, Slaughtered and Shafted, which that's um, there, I, there's a link to that 
to the YouTube channel that has the whole documentary. That's on the Badass Mova website. So um, if you just go there, you can see all my film projects there. And um, yeah, and that's that's also going to be the title of the book, just because I want I like something that trips people up when they try to remember it. Very cool. Well, it's a great title. Thank you. It reminds me of one of the old uh, black exploitation trailers. Yep, five on the black hand side. That's where I got the, got it from. Awesome. Glad I picked up on that. <laughs> <laughs> all right, I'm done asking David questions, Rob. I'm sorry. No, no, not at all. It's always, <laughs> you know, that's why we have people on the show is to find out what they got going on. So thank you again, David, for coming on the show. Thanks to Fred the Hammer Williamson as well, and thank you for listening. Yo, check this out. A lot of people be getting mad because I use the word nigga. You know what I'm saying? They don't like the fact that I use the word nigga. They say, you a black man. Yo, I tell them I'm a nigga. They don't understand that. So I'm going to say what I want to say. I call myself what I want to call myself. You know what I'm saying? They need to stay off my dick, you know? Damn right I'm a nigga. And I don't care what you are, cause I'm a capital N-I-double-G-E-R. Black people might get mad cause they don't see that they're looked upon as a nigga just like me. I'm a nigga, not a colored man or a black or a Negro or Afro-American, I'm all that. Yes, I was born in America, true, the South Central look like America to you. I'm a nigga, a stand-up nigga from a hard school. Whatever you are, I don't care, that is you, fool. I'm loud and proud, willing to die with a big beat. Out on the corner, I hang out like a horse thief. So you can call me dumb or crazy. Ignorant, stupid, inferior, or lazy. Silly or foolish, but I'm bad and bigger. And most of all, I'm a straight-up nigga. Nigga, nigga. That's right, I'm a nigga. You know what I'm saying? My man Lord Finesse is my motherfucking nigga. You know, evil is my nigga. Islam's my nigga. That's right, they're my niggas. Niggas, niggas. I'm a nigga in America, and that much I flunk. Cause when I see what I like, yo, I take what I want. I'm not the only one, that's why I'm not bitter. Cause everybody is a nigga to a nigga. America was stole from the Indians, show and prove. What was that? A straight up nigga move. A low down shame, yo, it's straight insane. Yet they complain when a nigga snatched their gold chain. What is a nigga supposed to do? Wait around for a handout from a nigga like you? That's why a low down nigga gets hyped. But I'm not the nigga of that type. I'm a steak and lobster eating, billionaire meeting, cash money making, moving, shaking, corporate jet gliding, limousine riding, writing hits, filthy rich, straight up nigga. That's right, I'm a nigga, nigga, nigga. Now I'ma write this song, though the radio won't play it. But I got freedom of speech, so I'ma say it. She wanna be les, he wanna be gay. Well, that's your business, I'm straight, so nigga, have it your way. Those who hate me, I got something for you. I'm a nigga with cash, a nigga with a lawyer. Not a watermelon, chitlin' eating nigga down south. But a nigga that'll smack the taste from your mouth. I'm contemplating, thinking, best champagne, drinking, 10 inch giving, extra large living. Mercedes Benz driving, striving, surviving. All the way live and kicking, hot fiving. Stroking, rapping, happening, deal doing. Fly in from Cali to chill with the crewing. Grinding, grooving, fly girly, grabbing, horny girl. Shooting long haired, having nigga. Straight up nigga, nigga, nigga. Nigga. Straight up nigga, nigga, nigga. Nigga. That's right, fool, look at me. Just the kind of nigga you like to hang from a tree. But all you KKK type grave diggers, he's back, fool, cause I'm a trigger nigga. I work real hard for my living. But I don't celebrate bullshit Thanksgiving. Sit up like some fool and eat turkey. That's the day your forefathers jerk me. Shifters all over here in locks and chains. Split us up, twist it up a nigga's brain. Now you keep me in constant sweat. 
But I'm a nigga that you'll never forget. A black, bad, ironclad, always mad. Fly nigga taking off from a helipad. Rolex styling, buck, wildin', cash piling. Sporting link chains and medallions. Intellectual, high tech, cashing seven digit checks and still breaking neck. The ultimate male supreme, white woman's dream. Big dick, straight up nigga, 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 nigga. Yeah, yeah. Yo, Gentlemen, and welcome to our town. My name is Miss Pruitt. I'm the school teacher here. But I recall living in Boston, and my family had black people working for us. They were good people. They used to sing and dance a lot. I used to love to watch them. Thank you for the welcome, ma'am. 
When you get back to Boston, you be sure and tell my people that you just met two niggas who don't know how to sing or dance.